Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, I wanted to continue and finish up with testosterone. Uh, some of you are probably getting tired of listening to testosterone, but actually a lot of questions have come in about this. And for most people, for most men, they've thought about testosterone. You know, after high school biology, they thought they knew everything about it. But uh, as they get a little older, they're going to find out and they have found out that it's a concern. And when they start to feel tired, they wonder if it's their testosterone. When they feel they're not as sexually active as they want to be in terms of desire, libido, then they kind of wonder if it's their testosterone. So I wanted to go over that again. And yes, it is connected with one of the remedies in essence. One of the helpful solutions is to drop your carbs. So that would bring it back to talking about the ketogenic diet, low carb, high fat. So um, let's back up a little bit. We layered the previous two episodes of giving you some good background and understanding about testosterone and its various contexts and how testosterone, androgens in general, but more specifically testosterone, gets converted to all estrogens, primarily estradiol. I know these are probably more technical words than you care to know. Well, let me just sort of freeze frame it right here and say this, that when men get to have more testosterone than, sorry, more estrogen than testosterone, that's called an estrogen dominance in men. The same thing can happen for in women and it's a slightly different context, but it's a problem either way. So the estrogen dominance, having more than a healthy ratio of estrogen to testosterone leads to a number of problems. And actually estrogen dominance is more of a causative factor or contributing factor to prostate cancer than is elevated testosterone. Isn't that interesting? What I want to freeze frame here is think of this ratio. If we're going to say the ratio of testosterone and estrogen. There's two ways you can come in the big, big picture. Two ways you can come to thinking about elevated testosterone. And that is either your production is low, right? And so you can go measure that. That's a lab and you can get very detailed on your labs. But first you'll do a blood lab, uh, you know, go in and have your testosterone taken. That's kind of a general test. And why I say it's general, because all hormones and even neurotransmitters to an extent rise and fall according to the clock, 
And then, of course, some activities. But for the most part, there's a chrono clock biology. So it's called chronobiology. And they can track when your testosterone is highest and when it's lowest and so on. And uh, it is very fascinating. And it started in Japan about, ooh, really 80 years ago. And now it's almost common discussion. But so the reason I say that, when you go in to get a lab of what's my testosterone, it's going to give you sort of a, you know, is it in the late afternoon that you went in? Did you go first thing in the morning? So you'll have to back up. But once you start showing up as low, consistently low, they'll have to go for more tests. And so low in terms of testosterone means that your production, they have to discern is your production low is, or is your conversion to estrogen high? All right. So if you're thinking of that scale in your mind, that's where we can begin this conversation. Is your production low? And they start looking for various precursors. You know, what's your DHEA, what's your pregnolone? And I'm not going to go into that, but we'll just call them precursors. So if you're low for the things that needed to be produced that go into making testosterone, that's kind of a production problem. If that looks pretty good, those numbers look pretty good, and your testosterone is low and your estrogen's high, then it's a conversion issue, okay? Being pretty much right on the money here, I mean, you can say it's oversimplified, but uh, it has to be to sort of get the point across. Most men, most men's issue is about conversion. You know, you, having said that, you hear this echo of, of a naysayer saying, oh, wait a minute, I knew somebody that, of course, there's always going to be a possibility. But for the most part, they fall into overconverting. So the question then comes, why are they overconverting? We've covered some of this before, but I think, let me start at the, at the back end, the thing that people think is a minority reason. And when you, when you um, try to look for the truth in any particular situation, you ask yourself, if this were true, where would I find this information? Where would this be documented accurately? Where would this be measured accurately? Is anybody, does anybody know how to measure it? Does any, and does, is anybody measuring these things? So what I'm getting at in this particular situation is environmental causes for low testosterone. So we call those endocrine disruptors. Uh, xenoestrogens and these are big general terms. And so xeno is foreign. So that's anything that's not an actual estrogen, but has an estrogenic effect. So you can say there's some phytoestrogens, which are generally pretty uh, low estrogenic strength, but they can possibly connect with estrogen receptors and block estrogen receptors and or stimulate estrogen receptors. Uh, we have plastics. That's a big deal. We have a number of chemicals that come from plastics, uh, BPA, bisphosphonyl A, and um, then you have phthalates, and then um, it goes on and on. I said, these are more than a little significance. So back to the question, well, how do we know that's a factor? How do, who's measuring this? But, and, and the general consensus by consensus by who? Consensus by most docs, they think, oh, well, that's a minor contributing factor. The reason it's considered a minor contributing factor is because it's not measured. Do you know any doctor that actually knows how to measure xenoestrogens that has ever measured 
uh, any of the plastic uh, endocrine disruptors? No. And so right, right there is going to be a minority of that. But it's become more and more of an issue and more and more research is coming out on that. And that's a big deal. So I don't know if it's a minor factor. I know in uh, my education, was certainly a lot about that. And your, your face creams and so on and so forth, your, your pesticides, your herbicides, your fungicides, your heavy metals, these are all estrogenic in their effects on the body. So that, in essence, is a, is a component of being estrogen heavy. So that's just the environment. If we remove all those environmental causes and pretend that we're living in a primitive world in which all food is good, it's not contaminated with anything, and it's just a question of finding out what you need to eat, you know, what are the things out there that are healthy to eat? You'll go find those. Okay, well, that in that pretend world, it's, it's a pretty straightforward diet. It's a high-fat, low-carb diet, you know, minimizing your refined carbs, but pretending this is all whole food, this is a this is the assumption that we're going on. If it's all whole food, unprocessed, then there you go. We're going to have pretty healthy. And you're just on that. Whether you're overweight or not overweight as a man, you're going to find that your ratio of testosterone to estrogen is going to be normalized very quickly just on eating that food, just on all the garbage is out. Uh, there's no pollutants in the world and this artificial way of looking at it. So that is a factor that has to be looked at. However, now bring in the 21st century and we do have this stuff in our water. We do have this stuff in our food. And the onus of the individual to be a little bit aware of this, to make a little bit better truths, uh, better choices, sorry, better choices. And and in, in, I'm sitting here at my desk and I realize how much plastic I'm surrounded by. It's like you sort of have to think twice of that without getting paranoid or not going too far, but it is a factor and it's a factor that did not exist 50 years ago. So it's among our, among our uh, environments and it's become such an issue that, um, don't know if you're aware of it, but the single plastic use issue on a per state basis, on a per county basis, um, many counties are trying to block, ban single use plastics and uh, it's a huge issue. The EU um, is now, I think by 2021, is supposedly going to go to be done with all single-use plastic. Canada is within the next couple of years. We'll see if these things come to happen. But there's been a number of cities and towns that have tried in the United States, have tried to declare themselves single-use, a banned on single-use plastic. And the government prohibited them from doing that, given their funding from the various lobby groups, et cetera, et cetera. And you know how that works. So that's unfortunate, but the, it looks like the outcry is going to get larger and larger on a grassroots basis that that may well come. But anyways, plastic is so ubiquitous in our environment that it is a real deal. Absolutely. It is a real deal. So if you did uh, testosterone as a search on Google PubMed or Google scholar, or just Google and did uh, Zeno, uh, endocrine disruptors in testosterone, you'll get a lot of information. And I'm just looking at, I take my notes too, to find out, you know, where are some of these things, where are some of these references? And uh, it's 90% plastic, you know, all the plastic containers you put your leftovers in, the plastic containers that uh, start off as being pacifiers for children, the tubing that is used in hospitals, those are very rich 
in uh, phthalates, the flexibility sort of um, suppleness that gives to plastic. So we have an issue there. So there's that. So there's the environmental aspect in the perfect world. If you just had to eat whole foods and that's just the way it is, you would normalize very quickly. So now let's go to a little bit of the reality that I see and uh, my focus in the people that I work with currently as a as a group, as a category, as a niche, if you will, are uh, heavy men, obese men. And almost to the man, I would say certainly up into the 90%, almost to the man, do they have low testosterone and high estrogen? And it's a conversion problem for the most part. Some it's been a little bit on the production side, but uh, that was pretty easy to, to change. But the conversion which we talked last week on is the aromatase. You know, this, for those who don't know about aromatase, another way it was called is cytochrome P450. It's a detoxification pathway that is found in many cells. It's found in many cells. Uh, it's particularly found in fat cells. So what does that mean to you? That means that fat cells can independently, not every fat cells, but most fat cells can independently take testosterone and convert it into estrogen. So that's part of the reason that when men, and it happens with women as well, but this is about the men for the most part, is that they, as they get heavier, and you have two different kinds of fats, you have the fat that's all over your body, like fat legs, fat arms, you know, fat jowls and so on. That's sort of the, what they used to call kind of the apple shape. There wasn't any, I'm sorry, the pear shape. There wasn't any who's body wide. So that subcutaneous fat also has the ability to convert to estrogens, but not as much as your belly fat. So think of your beer belly. And so just the fat cells, as you're accumulating fat, you're storing calories into your fat, is that they also convert testosterone to estrogen. So now you're tilting that ratio. Remember, we're looking at the ratio of testosterone to estrogen. When you start tilting in that aspect, you get into immune problems and immune situations. And so uh, that's called an estrogen dominant. So heaviness, abdominal, abdominal obesity, abdominal fat, a visceral adipose tissue, however you want to refer to it, that's an independent factor. The nice thing about having a factor like that is that that's something you can do something about. Absolutely. You know, you're not condemned to that. You might have set your, your metabolism off in a certain direction, but that's a doable thing that you can now pull back. You know, you can start changing things. So this is for somebody sitting in front of me that met that criteria. Absolutely. I would put them on a low fat, high, high carb, right? A high fat, low carb diet, ketogenic diet. And we'd see some remarkable changes, probably in the course of six weeks, certainly by nine weeks, give them six months. And if they stayed and they learned how to enjoy it and, you know, learned how to all the good foods you could have within that, not feeling like they're in prison and their choices have been removed from them, that they, you'd see remarkable changes. Uh, and you can measure that by blood work and hormone panels and so on and so forth. Okay. So the other aspect of the ratio testosterone to estrogen and and why is that an issue how do we get there so we've talked about environmental 
factors. We talked about heaviness, right? Obesity, abdominal obesity. Um, now we're going to talk about sleep. And sleep has become this popular topic, and I think that it should be talked about pretty much with every particular condition because so much uh, hormonal work takes place at night, specifically testosterone. So what does that mean? Well, let's say you're a person that has difficulty going to sleep, says you. And the reason I say says you is I've heard this many thousands of times and patients come in. What's the quality of your sleep? It's not great. What time do you go to bed? Oh, it's from here to there. It's not specific. Um, what time do you eat? Well, it's when, and it sort of floats around. Sometimes they eat late and, you know, before we even get to what they're eating, all these other factors are important as well. But the very specific point I'm trying to make here is if you have a poor quality sleep, you are going to have a poor ability to produce testosterone. So that's now on the production side. So merely sleep alone, not knowing or being able to capture a great night's sleep, create a great night's sleep is really going to hurt you. I, I'm not saying that you're like the college students that had to stay up for a week to study finals. It is, it is something that if you have a chronic low quality sleep and you care about your health, I'll go with that, and you care about your health, then you're going to have to stitch together a sleep plan for yourself. And the first thing is that people don't like to listen to is that they're going to have to sort of teach themselves. I always sort of say it's like, you know, it depending on your context of if you have pets at home or if you have children at home. But remember when you have children, they said, you know, they got to be to bed at seven o'clock or eight o'clock. It was deadline. It wasn't, there's no more negotiation. They were in bed. You might've said they could read for 15 minutes, but that you set the time for them to get in bed. Well, that little kid in you has not disappeared. It needs to get in bed by a specific time. So if you start habituating, I'm just going to layer some of these things you can consider for getting better sleep. If you get better sleep, it's like taking, it's like taking gobs of testosterone. If you're so deficient, gobs of testosterone, meaning you're allowing your body to produce what it needs to produce and to bring up a very uh, more appropriate balance in you. So you set a time ideally between nine and 10 o'clock. Some people say 10 o'clock, and then you make yourself get into the sheets. You're there by a particular time. If you have to lay on your back, staring at the ceiling, all right, that's first base. But you do that every night. You promise yourself to be in there. So depending on your particular situation, you pick that time and you and try to make it near 10 o'clock. If it's impossible, then adjust. But being regular, you're now going to set your own clock. That's a big, big deal. Hopping around from I was tired, so I went to bed early and I stayed up late. Forget that nonsense stay and pick a time and train. So you're in training yourself to get in bed. So that is a big deal. Yes, to have a cool room. Yes, to have a dark room. These are kind of the natural things, okay? And obviously to have it uh, quiet, relatively speaking, okay? All right, that is so important. People don't like to talk about that because that's now really on the boring side. That's so tedious, you're yawning. Yeah, you're falling asleep. They are worked. So this thing about light, they talk about, and this has become, in my view, way overemphasized is uh, blue light. So blue light, which is meant to be the light of daytime at night. And um, the blue light also comes from your 
computer and your phone and your your tablet. And so you need to be aware of that blue light as well. So there's a time in which you're going to stop being on the computer. And there's a number of ways you can do it. There's a app I have on my both my phone and my um, laptop that changes the it, it coincides to the time of the day. So when I travel, they all self-adjust. So the blue light stops probably around five and it gradually starts to get kind of auburn to orange and so on and get darker. And so that's one way it's been very helpful. So I don't just get blue light. Others have gone to the extent of putting on these glasses. You know, they're basically, they look like auburn glasses, the orange glasses, glasses, or almost like uh, the color of ski goggles, a little bit darker. Do that or don't do that. I think if you just sort of have an awareness of, you know, and this isn't lethal, you're now looking into blue light, but just be reasonable. This is something that's stimulating your eyes. It hits, it hits your melatonin receptors and so on. So it says, oh, or during daytime. So there's that, that's the blue light. But also what you need, when you wake up, you need the blue light. So you need to set yourself on that clock. When you get up, you open the curtains, you go outside, you get a shot of blue light, daylight into your eyes. So you don't stay in your dark room and go work on your whatever you're going to work on. You get out to light and you see full spectrum light in the morning. So that sets that clock up very precisely. They find that those who live north, fairly far north or in southern latitudes, that they don't have that full daytime. Obviously, they, if you're both poles, there's, there's months that go by without light. But those gray days, like in Seattle and Portland, who have the highest suicide rates in the country in the United States anyway, it was far part of the overcast days. They are somewhat north of the uh, lower 40, as I say, lower 48 states. But it's the grayness that it's hard for them to reset themselves. They just don't get that sparkle of of light. So uh, when we were living in Seattle, we certainly had every light bulb in our house was a bright full spectrum light. So when we woke up, we woke up to real daylight, the full spectrum daylight. So it's really important for you to know that. So you shut it down or you get these apps that, you know, shut down the color and make it not blue, but they'll, and that's a big deal. So if you add up the regimented time that you now set yourself to, to get in bed, the blue lights. And what I wanted to say is that those who take, I'm one, I think I have an addictive personality. I think those who know me will say, yeah, you do. Uh, for things like coffee, and I could easily be an alcoholic, though I've never been, and I don't drink that much. But in the back of my mind, I go, you know, I think I could have a drink, but I don't. Is that alcohol does disturb your sleep. The spirits, the stronger the alcohol, the more it will give you a poor quality sleep. So often people, the the stereotype now of the, the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, people came back from work, you know, they would have their cocktail and then they'd have their dinner. And a few people sort of work that way anymore. But the idea of why I'm home, I'm going to have that beer or the wine or maybe some spirits, but that's going to affect your sleep. And so what people do, then they start saying, well, I have my sleep aid. And the sleep aid could be anything from over the counter to something worse. Um, Even if you're just taking melatonin, take melatonin, for example, you go, well, I need some help tonight because I had, name your alcohol. So you start taking your melatonin. Now you're taking your melatonin over uh, and beyond 
what you need because you're already making enough melatonin. So you're taking melatonin and you're, and initially you go, that was great. I had a great night's sleep. And that happens for two or three days. Maybe you even get a week to two weeks out of it, but that effect is going to start to change and not be as good as it was initially. And why that is, your body has adjusted now to the dose you have given it. How does it adjust? A lot of different ways, but I'll say it down regulates receptors and so on. So now you've gone from, I like my drink to now I got to compensate for the drink that I had because the alcohol affects my sleep and therefore my testosterone. Remember, that's the core of this particular conversation. And now I need this thing, whether it's melatonin, and we'll get into a few other supplements, which I think are a lot better to take. And now you forget to take it because you went away someplace and you didn't bring your melatonin. And so now you are actually in a deficit. You have fewer receptors and your body's not getting, you know, you were giving it, you were spoon feeding it melatonin. Or then I could put five or six other little supplements or semi-hormones in place there. You now are stuck. You're not going to sleep well. Now you have to self-adjust. So if you, I want to say detox, now you have to sort of come back and let your body readjust to you making your own hormones, melatonin specifically I'm talking about. So that's a big deal. That's how you get way out there and then take that person taking the melatonin when that doesn't work as well. They start taking something else. Maybe it's melatonin and something else. Maybe it's melatonin and something over the counter. So you're now forcing your neurotransmitters to obey you. You're upregulating your sleepy ones and so on. Like GABA, and there's all sorts of medications and more mostly prescribed medications than OTCs, uh, gabapentin and uh, Valium and so on that put people to sleep, but you're still forcing yourself to create these things. So if you back away and, and, and have it be less complicated, and the trick here is we all have, so you got the time down. That is so important. You think about you're habituating that child to go to bed, thinking about your, if, if you don't have children, then think about that puppy or that cat, whatever. They are ritualized to this is the time we go to bed and you'll find that they go, if they go wherever that wherever you're going to go to sleep, they'll probably follow you there if you allow that to happen, if that's fine with you. But anyways, they know the schedule and they're there on the schedule. So schedule your inner child, if you will, schedule your sleep baby to be in the sheets by a certain time. You start to do that, 90% of the rest will not be a problem. I guarantee it. But anyway, so the trick is to not start with something that's going to increase your neurotransmitters or various hormones to make you sleepy, but something very light. So you start with your sleepy time teas or your chamomile. We actually do a couple pots of chamomile tea while we watch some Netflix in the evening, but it's become ritualized and we have our time dialed in. I've moved it up a couple hours because I'm working to get up early and into, into bed earlier, but you start there. So wh what else would you take? You would take things like when you think of magnesium, think of magnesium as a muscle relaxant. It's the opposite of calcium. So it wouldn't take a lot of magnesium, but there's types of magnesium that are more uh, sleep-inducing. So you have theanine, um, which is a component that comes from kinds of green tea, the non-caffeinated part, of course. And you'll find those are very gentle. And so, and even Chinese herbal formulas that are just very nice and sort of help you to sort of fall off. So if you can start with the lightest possible thing and use that 
then that's going to be the least disruptive. And what you're trying to do is to have agreement about this is when we're going to disconnect and go to sleep. So sleep is a big deal. How you do that. So you, the blue light, you can take it seriously or not take it seriously. Just do the app would be a big deal. If you do things like a hot shower, so you can do actually a, a contrast hydrotherapy. So if you did a, a hot shower and cold shower, so that is three minutes of hot, 30 seconds of cold, do that cycle three times, shut it off and, and go to bed you really would have given a, a nice, pleasant shock to your body, warmed it up and shocked your body that you would have been really tired. You know, you would have uh, really helped you sleep a lot. So these things are much more beneficial short-term and in the long run if you take that approach. But if you start loading up on maybe one more beer or a little more wine or, oh, you need more pills to counteract what you had before, you're going to get into a very wobbly and out-of-balance sequence of getting to sleep. And the net is that you're going to be not producing your testosterone. You're going to be underproducing growth hormone, and it's going to be contributing to, we can go way off the deep end of various cancers, immune situations, and so on. So if you can get your sleep, sleep is probably the biggest pro testosterone producer around in the men that I'm dealing with. So if that was the one thing I did in their lives, and they actually did that, they wouldn't need various supplements and so on and so forth. The other way that when we're now looking at testosterone, men just want to go get testosterone replacement. But as I've mentioned before, if you're not taking care of your, your glucose, your testosterone is just like water through a sieve and it's going to end up as estrogen and you've just contributed to a higher estrogen dominance and all the problems that causes. I wanted to review for just a second longer that, you know, there's two ways to get to elevated blood sugar, right? So elevated blood sugar is elevated blood glucose. And that comes from either you're eating a lot of refined carbs or you have a stressed life. You're either making your blood sugar, right? Cortisol to the liver to gluconeogenesis or you're having donuts or I'm exaggerating, but that's, that's how you can come to that. So you have to look at blood glucose as a real thing. Blood glucose high will uh, increase your uh, insulin and your insulin is going to be the problem. And as glucose has its own problems being high as well. But for the most part, that's true. So you have to look at that. And so why I think if you had a, um, what they call a continual glucose monitor, CGMs, uh, I talked a little bit about before the Freestyle Libra. It's cheap enough so you can get your doctor to prescribe it to you and you'll get to see your pattern. And having that kind of biofeedback is tremendous, absolutely tremendous. I've, I, the education I see people, their, their, their eyes go on like they've never seen it before. It's like, I didn't know it took four hours to, for my blood sugar to come back after having a piece of pizza or whatever. And so by having that, it's a good thing. You also can have a glucometer which is doing the finger pricks and sort of prick yourself along the way and, and do your own documentation. But however you get that feedback, it's really important. It's a real thing. So it used to be that glucometers were strictly for diabetics and those would be the patients that filed through my office anyway. And I was always amazed to watch the technology grow. And now I realize it should be everybody. You, at home, you should have a blood pressure cuff. You should have obviously a scale for your weight scale. 
and they're getting pretty sophisticated now too. Um, and you should have a glucometer. Now you can get a, gl a glucometer and ketometer together in the Keto Mojo, which is that combo. And I think that's wonderful. It even lets you download as a spreadsheet. So wouldn't that kind of biofeedback of blood glucose, whether it's from the CGM, Freestyle Libra, or the glucometer, it's really important for you to know that. You can wing it, perhaps, but I think to know how these things affect you, to the degree that you're interested in health at all, if you're not, then none of this is worth listening to. You're on the wrong podcast. <laughs> Having that feedback, and you can get a 14-day printout, and you can mark it. Oh, this is when I had the pizza. Oh, this is when I had the beer. Oh, this is when I had coffee. All these things, or didn't have coffee. Coffee hasn't been an effect for me, but it's for others. So that kind of understanding of your blood sugar, it's just so connected with so many other things. If you did nothing else, I don't think you need to know about leptin or garrulin or all the other various secondary hormones that come from uh, insulin. I think if you just focus on glucose levels, you're going to bring it back in sync and you'll find, uh, well, weight loss will be encouraged because as you drop your insulin, uh, your sleep will get better. And so it's uh, quite the quite the factor to keep to keep watching. I would redo my entire practice and base it entirely on people's insulin and glucose levels. Uh, if I was to redo my time, it's that important. And from there, then you can sort of look at their diet, and from there you can look at their other aspects. And of course, before we've talked about resistance training and how that stimulates growth hormone, but we've talked enough about that before. And you can listen to those podcasts back with Dr. Ben. Uh, it's a big deal and it's very serious. I, I take it as a serious part of my life. So I hope that's been enough to say that, to recap, when we look at testosterone, we're looking at a testosterone-estrogen ratio, ratio. And either we have a problem with low testosterone because we have a high conversion over to estrogen, and now we chase down those factors and things that we can actually do something about, or we have a upstream problem because we're not getting the factors that are letting us make testosterone. And that's not very often that it's an upstream issue. But if it is an upstream issue, it's very easy to treat that. You need the labs, you need the data, you need to do some analysis, but then you can work with somebody who's going to change that for you. But usually you have to work at both ends at the same time once you understand what the situation is for the person. Okay, I am going to leave you here now and I'm going to just give a brief update. I had thought that this would be the week that I would be interviewing Kilmer McCauley on homocysteine. Um, that's been put off to mid-January. He's working on yet another paper. The guy is an incredible, uh, an incredible man and I hope that we have plenty of time to talk. We've gone back and forth in emails and uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about that and all its relevance. Most people up until these last few podcasts had never even heard of homocysteine. And um, so go look that one up. It's going to be a lot of things to talk about. And I'll certainly do prequels so nobody will be left out in understanding any of the more technical issues. Hope this was worth your time. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that 
gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered. And I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.